Well, again, good morning. Good morning and welcome. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 2. Uh, we'll get there in a moment. I'm going to ask uh, also one of our elders, Dave Haverstick. Dave, if you would grab that mic and you can join me up here. Hello. There we go. I'd like to invite any of the current and former elders to come forward. We're going to have a time of prayer and send off for George. As uh, most of you probably know, George and Rose are about to embark on a sabbatical for the next couple of months, and we're excited for the opportunity for you, George. I appreciate that. I wonder if you would tell us whether coming forward is something that you're looking forward to about the next couple of months. Well, actually, uh, so uh, my sabbatical actually officially starts on June 11th, and it will run through the first Sunday in August. During part of that time, we're actually going to be based at Tyndale House, which is a residential library and study center for the study of the Bible in Cambridge, England, uh, which is a place we've spent much time before. It's kind of an important place in our lives. And I would also just highlight, in case you're interested, Tyndale House has really produced some interesting resources on studying the Bible, as well as producing a quarterly online magazine that you can subscribe free to, and it is a great way to kind of treat, uh, keep up with trends in biblical scholarship. So you can, here's the website, uh, tyndalehouse.com. So we're, we're, among other things, looking forward just to spending time there, uh, reconnecting with some friends. For me, it's a great time just for reading, reflection, study, even, even for some things coming up over the next year here in the life of our church. So. Sounds great. Sounds great. Let's gather around, gentlemen. Our Father, Lord God, we thank you so much for our Pastor George and for his wife Rose. And just ask, um, well, first of all, thank you for providing uh, this opportunity and for having the, uh, just the opportunity to spend time at uh, Tyndale House, which a space, a place of special importance um, for George. And uh, just thank you for this uh, opportunity to uh, be refreshed and renewed. And we pray that you will be in it and leading him, just preparing f- for the opportunities to interact with other Christian leaders and just uh, those conversations and the opportunity for study, for rest, for renewal, and for refreshing. We pray for your safety, uh, provision of safety as they travel, and just for a time of renewal, uh, even in their uh, husband and wife relationship, Lord. Thank you again um, for this great opportunity for George, and we look forward to hearing about it on their return. In your name we pray, Jesus. Thanks. Thanks, thanks guys. Thank you. You make sure you come back, right? <laughs> yeah, but don't worry. I've got a return ticket. Don't worry. Uh, well, and I just, I just want to say, um, yeah, Rose and I was... We just appreciate your prayers. I mean, I'll be honest with you, you know, last couple of years at times have been really draining. And so I really appreciate the opportunity to get away and spend some time uh, just in study and reflection. I realize for a lot of you, going to a library may not sound refreshing, uh, but, but this is a place that really uh, serves that function in my life. So we're really looking forward to spending about half of our sabbatical there. There'll be a little bit of other travel and other things going on, but... Um, we appreciate your prayers. Um, pray for the dog while we're away. Uh, that's been the biggest challenge is getting our dog covered while we're away. And, uh, but we look forward to, to reconnecting in August. So 
uh, we look forward to those conversations. Now this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up our journey through the life of Abraham. We've been following this journey of Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and over the last few weeks, we've just been kind of tracking their experience and the things God was teaching them, and it's an important life to study because in different ways, the life of Abraham is presented to us in Scripture as, well, this is what this journey of following God can look like. This is, this is what this journey as a follower of Christ can look like. So this morning, we're going to wrap up this study, and over the last few weeks, we've really You know, we've seen the ups and downs of his life. We've seen him take steps of faith and obedience. Uh, We have seen him move in and out of doubt. We have seen them get kind of stuck in the daily grind and the wear and tear that uh, that has brought in their lives. And yet, despite the missteps, despite some of the challenges, there's, I think there's been progress along the way. And, And underlying all of Their life story has been this promise that God is going to do something amazing. The promise to bless. The promise that, you know, (laughs) through them, God was going to create this great nation that would bless the world. And at times, in their life story, it seemed like an empty promise. At times, it seemed like an outlandish promise. But it was a promise that was ultimately fulfilled with the birth of Isaac. And as we saw the last time, two weeks ago, when, you know, when Isaac is born, it's just, it's a great season of joy and laughter. That's what his name means, right? I mean, we get the last laugh. Finally, finally, there is resolution to the tension in this story. And this is the point at which we expect to say, and they all lived happily ever after. But then... Then there's one more twist in the story, one more complication. There's one more threat to the promise. And we see that in chapter 22. And this time, the threat comes in the form of God's own words. So let's look at that scene recounted for us at the beginning of Genesis 22. Sometime later... And this is years later. God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here am I, he replied. And God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. 
When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham! Here am I, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, I've got, I've got to tell you, you know, I, I, I'm a pastor's kid. I, I grew up in church, and I still remember as a kid, right, being, growing up with the stories of Scripture, and I remember this story. And I've got to tell you, as a kid, I loved this story. As a kid, I just loved the action, the intensity, and I always, you know, I had, as a kid, I still remember this in my mind. I had this vision of kind of, you know, you get to the climax, and there's Abraham, and he's raising the knife above his son, and just Right at the moment he's about to bring it down, God intervenes. But you know, as I got older, as I got older, I found this story more troubling. As I got older, I just started asking this question Why? I mean, it's one thing to kind of tell this story with the flannel graph and nobody gets hurt, but the more you kind of engage it, I think we need to be honest. This, this story raises questions. I mean, we know from the very beginning, well, God, God is testing Abraham, but he doesn't know that. Why would God do this? I mean, you can almost read this as a practical joke that wasn't funny. What kind of person, what kind of God tells you to sacrifice your own son? Furthermore, in asking why, I mean, if you really kind of dig into the story, you may even find yourself asking, well, why didn't Abraham question this? Why didn't Abraham push back? Why didn't Abraham stand up for his own son? The more you slow down and process the scene, just there, there, there are more questions. Maybe the questions you're not always comfortable asking in a church setting, but the questions that can lodge in the back of your mind nonetheless. And just to let you know, I, I, I'm a pastor, I get that, but I wrestle with, I mean, there's some places in Scripture, I just really wrestle with what God is doing, and I, it's like, wow, God, Really? And this is kind of one of those places. So I don't, it's not like I've got easy answers for the questions we bring to this text. But as, as I engage what's going on here, here are, two, here are two observations that I have found helpful. The first is this. First of all, and this can be hard, but first of all, I think this is a text where I have to come back to the truth that God is God and I am not. 
Would I have responded differently to Abraham at this point? Probably. But I'm not God. And at times, we are really confronted face-to-face with the reality that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And we don't fully understand what he's doing. For instance, think about Abraham in this situation. As this scene unfolds, he has no idea. He has no idea how this story is going to be retold and retold. As this scene unfolds, he has no idea of the symbolism and the deeper meaning that this story will take on to future generations. Specifically, just again, notice some of the details. Remember, where are they told to go? God says, go to the land of Moriah. Now, at first glance, that seems to be just another one of these geographical references in the Bible that we tend to skip over, right? There are all these places, sometimes all these, you know, isites, thoseites, whateverites, and we just don't really pay attention. We don't, you know, all these names that are foreign to us. And Moriah initially, hits a, that's just another name in the Bible. Go to the land of Moriah. But Moriah takes on new significance when we get to 2 Chronicles, because when we get to 2 Chronicles, we are told that Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem and it's in the land of Moriah. It's kind of in the Mount of Moriah. And so it turns out that Moriah, the land of the Moriah, is actually at the heart of ancient Jerusalem. It's the Temple Mount. It's that area surrounding the temple. Isaac was to be sacrificed in the land of Moriah. Now, who else would be sacrificed in the land of Moriah centuries later? Jesus. As as it turns out, the most likely site of Jesus' crucifixion, a place called the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in the old city of Jerusalem, it's, it's... it's just a third of, the, of a mile from the Temple Mount. If you and I, you know, if we went there, I, was, I, was, I, I walked this just a few weeks ago. You can, it's just a short walk from the Temple Mount to where Jesus was most likely executed. Jesus was crucified in Moriah. And think about a couple of other interesting details that we read in Genesis chapter 22. How long did it take them to get there? The text says, well, on the third day, they arrived. For three days, Isaac was almost as good as dead. And where else do we read that language in Scripture on the third day? We read it in the story of Jesus and the resurrection. And we're also given this interesting detail, this surprisingly minute detail, that at one point, Isaac is is himself carrying the wood for the sacrifice. He carried the wood himself. And who would carry the cross himself? 
Jesus. And not surprisingly, centuries later, it it becomes clear in the storyline of early Christianity that early followers of Jesus, particularly those who came from a Jewish background, they looked at this story and they said, look at this. Already God was anticipating what he would do centuries early in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Already in the Old Testament, here's a dramatic moment where God was pointing us to Jesus. But Abraham doesn't know that. So I I think we have to, as we look at kind of the questions we raise about this text, acknowledge God is God and I'm not. Now I realize, I realize, you know what, that's not necessarily an emotionally satisfying response. But I do think it's a, a truth we have to come to grips with. And as we ask these kinds of questions, these why questions about this text, I think there's one other thing to note. And that is this, and I find this very significant. That is the text of Genesis encourages us to read this scene as part of God's ongoing story and God's ongoing relationship with Abraham. In other words, there are clues in the text that in essence say, don't read this scene in isolation. You have to read this scene as part of a bigger story. You have to read this scene in the context of a long relationship between God and Abraham. And and let me just kind of give you a couple of technical details here that are actually in the original Hebrew text. First of all, when you look at this text, there's a surprising parallel between Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, right? Genesis 12 is Abraham's call, and there's that phrase, you're to go from your people, your country, your father's household. And there's an interesting parallel grammatical structure between that command and what we read here in Genesis 22. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to Moriah. It's like these two scenes are bookends at different points in Abraham's life. One is this kind of learning experience coming at the beginning of his life, and one is this learning experience coming toward the end of his life. And they're part of the same story. As a son, he begins by letting go of his father's house. And as a father, he ends by letting go of his son. So there there are clues in the text that we're to see this story arc, that, that this is part of a much longer relationship between God and Abraham. Secondly, there's an unexpected grammatical construction that appears in this text in reference to God. As God directs Abraham, it actually says... The God, God is referred to as the God, who was commanding Abraham to take his son. And you're like, why call him the God? Because we need to understand that this is that God that has been in relationship with Abraham for years. This is the God who has already proven himself faithful. This is the God who has already been guiding him. This is the God who has kept his promises. This is the God who has given him a son in his old age. He is the one now speaking. And finally, let me just highlight one other grammatical clue in this passage. As God commands Abraham to take his son and go to Moriah, There's just this little Hebrew word. It's actually referred to as a particle. Just this little particle that's included in the command. 
It's not normally translated into English, but here's the tone that it communicates. This little particle actually communicates the idea of please, please. It can be used in context where God is asking someone to do something staggering, even as he commands. And believe it or not, even as he commands, he's in some sense saying, please. For those of you who are parents, have you ever gone through this experience as, you know, as your, as your kids have gotten older, as they've grown up and become more independent? Have you ever had a conversation that went something like this? You're, maybe you're concerned about a bad decision they, they're about to make, and you want them to understand the implications of it, and, and you kind of have a conversation where you say, look, I know you want to do this. I know this is what you want to do. But let me tell you, here's the step I really think you need to take. Here's, here's what you need to do instead. And I know this may not make sense to you, but one day it will. So, so trust me on this, please. Take this step, not that step. Ever had a conversation like that? So God comes to Abraham. And this is not an isolated event, right? We are encouraged to see this is part of a bigger storyline. God comes to Abraham in the midst of a long-standing relationship where they've been walking together, when where Abraham has been learning along the way, where God has been faithful, and he now says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to ask you to do something staggering. You need to take your son. You need to head to Moriah. I know this doesn't make sense. But trust me, please. This is what you need to do. And it is in the context of that relationship that Abraham responds. And arguably, his is not a response of resignation. I think it's a response of anticipation. I think at some level, deep down, Abraham is... He's responding, and at the core of his being, he's saying, I don't know what's going on here, but God is going to do something. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what it will entail, but God is going to do something here. The writer of Hebrews says Abraham was even open to the idea that that Isaac would be raised from the dead. This is not an act of resignation. It is an act of anticipation based on their previous relationship. Abraham is acting out of the realization that God is faithful to his promises. And I think this really gets to what's happening in the storyline. Because really what's happening here in this story is this, Abraham is learning that God will provide. Right? I mean, in verse 8, that's what he says to Isaac. Dad, what, hey, Dad, we got all the other stuff, but what about the sacrifice? God will provide. And then as the scene closes, after God provides the ram, what does Abraham say? He says, you know what we're going to name this place? The Lord will provide. And then we're told in the text that to this day, it is still said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. 
this is what Abraham, this is what this text is all about. This is what this scene is all about. God has created an experience for Abraham to come to a deeper understanding that God provides. And interestingly, there's, let me just give you one more intriguing thing in the original language here. In this text, there's this interesting link between the words for fear and the word for provide. Right? At the end, God acknowledges that, you know, Abraham feared me. And Abraham says, well, God provided. And in Hebrew, those words sound very similar. The word for fear, yera. The word provide, yera. You hear the similarity? Yera, 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 yera. You hear the similarity? And what this does in the original language is it, it brings these themes together. So that what we are really learning and what Abraham is learning is that at the heart of the fear of the Lord is the realization that God will provide. God will be faithful to his promises. That's the overarching lesson that Abraham is learning here. And if I were to kind of place this this moment in the the broader sweep of Abraham's life, here's the way I would describe it. Here's what Abraham is learning. Abraham is learning this. I don't have to control. Instead, I should obey because God will provide. That's what Abraham is learning in the overarching flow of his life. I don't have to control Instead, I should obey because God will provide. I mean, think again about Abraham's life, right? God calls him and gives him this amazing promise. But it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't simply a matter of years. It would take decades. And consequently, I think particularly when he felt certain pressure, when he felt stress, fear, anxiety, Abraham's response was to try and control. Right? Remember early on, we, and we saw this in Genesis 12, right? This, right? He steps out in faith. God calls him. Hey, I'm going to send you to this land. I'm not going to give you any details, but you just need to go. And Abraham goes. And look at this amazing step of faith. And then shortly thereafter... He's in Egypt. Things have gotten complicated. He's feeling the pressure. There's fear about what's going on here. And what does he do? He lies about his wife. Nope, she's not my wife. She's my sister. Had he been trusting God? Yes, but things got complicated. He became fearful for his own life. And under the weight, I think, of the fear, the uncertainty, and we get this, the kind of the anxiety, what does he do? He tries to take back control. 
And it's almost like he says, okay, up to this point, God, I've trusted you. I believed in you. I made this radical move across the ancient world because of what you said. But now things have kind of gotten complicated. So I'm just going to take this back. And the way I'm going to take, try to take back control is I'm going to lie about my wife. So maybe that will guarantee that I'm, I'm not in any way injured in this very threatening environment that I perceive in Egypt. And as it turns out, he did this on multiple occasions. And along the way, I think it's clear he really struggles with, and who's going to be my heir? God's given me this promise, but who's going to be my heir? And quite possibly early on after the promise is given, he presumes, well, Lot will be my heir, my nephew. In chapter 15, he make, it kind of gives us a clue that he's been thinking about this other guy in his household. Maybe he will be my heir, this guy named Eliezer. And then we really see him take kind of matters into his own hands, right? He has a child with his wife's handmaid, and now we have Ishmael. And again, in some sense, Abraham's been trusting God, but it's like at moments he feels like, okay, you know what? This isn't moving fast enough. I don't like the uncertainty here. So God, I'm just going to take back control of this. And we see those different moments in the storyline. But then we get to chapter 22. And what does he do? He obeys. And remember what God says at the end. God says, because you did not withhold your son from me. And I almost think it's like God is looking at Abraham and he's smiling and he's saying, you know, Abraham, in the past, this would have been one of those situations where you just take it back just like you've done before. This would have been one of those moments. You just take it back. You get uncomfortable. You become fearful. You become overwhelmed by the uncertainty. And you're like, I just have to control. I just got to control this. In the past, Abraham, this is what you would have done. But this time you didn't. Why? Because he was learning, right? I don't have to control. Instead, I should obey because God will provide. And you know, even even as Abraham had to learn this, I think we have to learn it as well. Because even if we have been followers of Christ for many years, at times under pressure, under stress, under fear and anxiety, Times we're going to feel that desire to, you know what, this, God, I love you. I've been following you, but this I've got to take back. This I've got to try and control. I've got to control the situation. I've got to control other people. And when that happens, we are vulnerable to all sorts of unhealthy steps. I mentioned this, I think, before, but when our oldest son went off to college, that really was a hard season for me. The last few days before he, we dropped him off at Pitt, I, I, I just, I really would, looking back, I would describe it this way, I panicked internally. And the panic revolved around this question, what else do I need to tell him before he goes, right? What have I forgotten to teach him and tell him now that he's headed to college? And during those last few days, there were multiple conversations that started something like this. Hey, Paul, there's one more thing. Or, 
I, I just want you to keep this in mind. <laughs> or, I know we haven't talked much about this, but... And off I went. And then we got to the day where we were going to drop him off at college. And our family went in two cars to get all of his stuff out there. He was in one car with me, and everybody else was in the other car. And as we're headed out to Pittsburgh, my mind was just racing, right? Did we talk enough about finances? What about finding a church? What about how to make relationships well at the beginning of your college experience? What about good study? Did we have all, the, did we, have we had all those conversations and all the, these thoughts are just bouncing around in my head and you know, I'm just ready to explode with, we need to talk about, we need to talk about. And, and right in the middle of the drive, he falls asleep in the car. <laughs> I know, and I'm having this conversation with myself. You know, I think in reality, if you pay attention, how you respond to stressful situations reveals certain things about your personality. And sometimes our response to stress reveals how we seek to regain control, right? Under stress, here's how we seek to regain control. Here's how we seek to things, take things back. And maybe, you know, in Abraham's case, if under stress he lied... For me, under stress, I teach. <laughs> so, you know, if I just give you enough information, I'm going to regain, you're going to do the right thing, and I'm kind of going to regain the control of the situation. And in looking back on that situation, what, what I, I think I really understand now, what was happening was this. I, I, was, I was just experiencing a loss of control. Right? My son was leaving our household. We were entering a new season, and that, there were changes there. And so this is, this is what I was doing. I got you know, how do I, what, what do I do? How, do? how do I hold on to this? And what does that look like? And so this was my response. Now, we got through that, but I think, you know, what would have been helpful to say? I think it would have been helpful just to say, you know, I don't have control. I don't have control of this. Instead, I should obey. So what does that look like in this situation? And I can do that because God will provide. Now, grabbing hold of this truth, let me, let me just make several just really bulleted additional comments. I think just things to keep in mind, really, for us to take hold of this truth. For us to follow, here's several things we need to understand. And I think one thing we need to understand is our faith will be tested. We see this, you know, the Bible just acknowledges in different ways our faith may be tested. Even through just the everyday realities of life, in some ways our faith can be tested. Sometimes we assume if I follow God, then life will go without complications or challenges. That wasn't true for Abraham. It will not be true for you. Yet understand, God's intent for these challenging circumstances is not to destroy, it is to develop. Our faith grows as it is stretched, as it is exercised. And what God was doing through this experience was bringing Abraham really to a deeper understanding of who he is and what he's doing. So we need to understand our faith will be tested. Along with that, I think we need to understand in the middle of those experiences, the right answer is always obedience. 
I mean, that was, that's just what you see for Abraham. He doesn't get it. I think he's got a sense of expectation, but what, is, what does he just do? He starts taking steps to obey. And the truth is for us, in the midst of all sorts of situations, we can find ourselves kind of pulled in a multitude of directions. We can find ourselves pulled into kind of the direction of, okay, how do I regain control of this? And if some of us are honest, we know there's certain things we do, sometimes unhealthy things, to try and regain control of other people, regain control of situations. So in those moments, I think I need to take a deep breath. I need to slow down and ask, okay, so what is, what is obedience look like in this situation. I really can't control it, but what what does it look like to obey? Even for those of you who are parents, I mentioned this last Sunday, but let me just highlight a resource that we've developed we're going to start talking about over the next year. It's a resource called It Matters, and the, the goal of this resource is just to provide a framework for how you as parents can really engage the spiritual development of your kids at different seasons of life, and how we as a church can come alongside and partner with you in this journey. And, and making this available, we're not in any way saying, look, here's how you control the situation. You can't. But what we're encouraging you to think about is what is what is obedience looks like as you engage your kids in each of the stages they are going to go through. So the, the right answer is always obedience. And so thirdly, I think we, we have to understand and acknowledge at times faith involves letting go. Faith involves letting go in order to live. As I've already mentioned, in, you know, under the, some of these stressful situations, and we saw this in Abraham's life, kind of our natural gut reflex is, I've got to regain control. I've got to hold on to this tightly. And yet, as Abraham was learning, sometimes you have to let go of it in order to live. Sometimes you have to let go of it in order to experience the flourishing that only God can give. In fact, maybe right now, there's an area in your life where it's time for you to remind yourself, I don't have to control. I can't control this. Instead, I should obey. So what does that look like? And I can do that because God will provide. And the reality of that provision now brings us to a time of communion. In a moment, our our worship team is going to come back and lead us in a song, and here's how we're going to get ready for communion. You'll notice there are trays at the front, and I'm going to ask one or two people from each section to kind of come to the front of your section, and if you could just distribute the cups and the bread, and, and I will come back after this next song, and we will celebrate this together. And as we come to this time of communion, let me just again remind you 
of Abraham's experience. Abraham was told, go to the land of Moriah. And as it turned out, Moriah would be the place of testing. It was the place of uncertainty and complexity. But it was also the place where God provided. And maybe you're here this morning, and that's really what you need to hear. Because maybe you're here this morning, and you haven't thought in these terms, you haven't used this vocabulary. Maybe you're here this morning, but you're in Moriah. And it feels like you're being stretched, and you're being tested, and you're kind of wondering, okay, God, what is this about? It feels like you're being challenged to take steps of faith you've never taken before. And if that feels scary, if it feels simpler just to walk away, please remember that the land of Moriah is not only the land of testing, it's not only the land of complexity, the land of Moriah is also the land of provision. And as we come to this time of communion, we're remembering the one who ultimately provided. We're remembering the one who died and was raised in Moriah so that you might experience God's grace in Moriah. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite people in different sections to come forward and distribute the elements. Our worship team will lead us and then I'll come back in a moment and we will celebrate this together. So Father, we, we've come to this kind of ending part of Abraham's life and I confess this, this is a hard story. It's a story with questions and we don't always have easy answers. But it is a story that reminds us that you provide. And Father, I pray particularly for those of us here who need to hear that message. Father, some of us are in Moriah. And all we see is the hard stuff. We don't see the provision. So I pray even now your spirit would stir within us this reality of the wonder of what Christ has done. And the reality that even when we don't fully understand what you're doing, you are faithful to your promises. May we reaffirm today that Moriah is the land where God provides. So with that in mind, we now come to the table to remember the work of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray.